The following session took place at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mr. Smitty Grider and Rabbi Eliyahu Schusterman will now co-present Spirituality is Simple. I just met Smitty. Actually, we met for the first time here today, but uh, we connected through um, the work that I do and that he does and decided that this would be a good format for today's conversation. So what we're going to do is we're each going to take five minutes and introduce ourselves and kind of our journey and what brings us to this uh, stage here this, this afternoon. And then we have a number of um, different topics that we're going to talk about in the space of spirituality, and each of us will share some uh, brief reflections on it. And if time permits, at the end, we'll do some Q&A. Okay, so without further ado, Smitty Greider. Okay, I guess I'll kick this thing off. Uh, so my name is Smitty. I am a therapist here in, in the Atlanta area. And um, I would say, when I was thinking about what I would say in terms of what brings me here, um, to, to summarize it in one word, it would probably just be suffering, human suffering, my own, as well as the suffering of the clients that I meet with on a regular basis. And finding some uh, meaning or some type of uh, ways of coping with it and how to, uh, yeah, find meaning in our, in our suffering and purpose. And um, that started very early on for me. I actually got married about a week ago. So, yeah, Max. Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and my best man was giving a toast and he was, he was speaking about me and who I am. And he, he mentioned from the beginning um, when we were little, he said he always saw me as someone who was searching for something. And, um, and I think that's what I was searching for. I was searching for some kind of meaning in the suffering I was experiencing. Having grown up the son of a mother who suffered from the disease of addiction, uh, kind of a broken home, things weren't making sense around me, I was suffering a lot and I was looking around for some type of explanation for what was happening. And that led me in, on my own kind of journey um, that at some points led to increasing my suffering until eventually I found uh, a, a spiritual life which has given me a sufficient meaning. It hasn't eliminated the suffering that I experience in the world, but it has given me a sufficient meaning to exist within it and to find purpose within it. So that's what brings me here. Awesome. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit about... Uh your story and uh, your professional life in, in, re in relation to this topic? Sure, of course. So I am a person in long-term recovery from substance abuse. Um, I'm also, as I mentioned, uh, a trauma survivor from early on. Uh, my mother's an, an addict. <clears throat> and so um, my recovery has become a lot larger than just abstinence from substances. Um, and has, yeah, it's taken on a life of its own. And so... I went to college in Alabama, graduated with a master's in accounting, and I worked as a CPA for about six years. I found that very uh, wanting <laughs> and boring and did not fit my personality very well. So I went back to school, um, mostly inspired by my own journey to get a master's in social work and worked as a spiritual director at a substance abuse tr uh, treatment center here in Atlanta for about five years, Talbot Recovery Campus. Um, which specialize in treating uh, mostly physicians and pilots who suffer from addiction. Um, and left there and have started now my own private practice here locally, uh, seeing clients individually. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so a little bit about myself and what brings me here today. Um, I'm, I'm going to do this in a little bit of a roundabout way. So I, I heard a rabbi who often speaks on recovery um, he was asked by someone in a, in a recent class that he did for us, they said, Rabbi, are you, are you one of us? And he gave a great answer. He says, it doesn't make a difference if I'm one of us or not, because all of us are addicts in some way, and all of us can benefit from recovery. And I came up with a line while uh, Dr. Teplow was speaking before, it just popped into my head. Um, I'm not an addict, but my life's been changed by recovery. So... I'm going to take that one to the bank. Um, 
So my journey briefly is as a rabbi, um, you know, people find people that they're supposed to find. And over the years, various people have come to my door looking for guidance for addiction and so on. Um, some with happy endings, some not with happy endings. Um, and a number of years ago, Rabbi Sheistab was actually in Atlanta doing a lecture for us. And uh, one of the local foundations reached out to me and said, would I bring, would I bring Rabbi Taub to their offices so they can have a discussion around addiction in the Jewish community? And I did, and, um, and I was privileged to be there while Rabbi Taub basically set the stage for what, what addiction is and what recovery is, similar to what he spoke about earlier for those of you that were present. But at its core, it was mind-blowing because what he shared resonated so strongly with me and that is that each of us are on a spiritual quest. And we live in this perpetual tension between our desire for a deeper spiritual connection and the tension that the body and what's termed in Hasidic terminology as the animal soul pulls us back down to our own selfish, narcissistic, self-interested uh, desires. Um, and it just resonated so strongly with me. And it just warmed me up to the world of recovery. Um, in 2000, probably was 2016, one Friday night, um, I don't see my aunt here, but I had a cousin who passed away a number of years ago and in his memory I decided to start Friday night services. We don't really get a crowd on Friday night and at that time we were also not getting a crowd. It could, sometimes it was me and the other rabbi and my sons. Um, and this young man walks into the Chabad house and uh, says, can I join you for services? We said, sure. So he joined us for services, and then when services were over, he said, can I come back next week? And we said, sure. And he started coming every week, and then he asked if he could start coming Saturday day, and he started coming Saturday day, and then he started uh, asking if uh, he can spend the night because he became uh, Shabbat observant, and then he used to spend all afternoon with uh, Rabbi Solish studying Torah. And long story short, over the next two years, he became f a fully observant Jew. And just a sweet, soft-spoken fellow. And one Shabbos morning, one Shabbat morning, he didn't show up to services. And by 11.30, somebody had come into the, uh, to the synagogue and said that they had found um, Jeff, who had overdosed uh, on a relapse. And fast forward, uh, his funeral, which took place later that week, um, was attended by 50 participants from our Chabad Center, and 150 people from his recovery community. And what was so stark for us was that the 150, that we did not know that he had a recovery community. We didn't even, we didn't even know that he was in recovery. In hindsight, what we found out was that he was uh, um, in a pretty intensive program called MAR here in Atlanta for recovery. And one of the requirements as part of a spiritual journey is that all of their um, Participants need to attend a, a service each week. They don't care which faith it is. And he went to various different synagogues until he found us and found his home. Long story short, um, after he passed away, after his funeral, his uh, family made a, a large contribution to our Chabad Center to open up a space in the building in his memory. But not just a space with a name, but a space that is dedicated to helping minimize stigma in the Jewish community around addiction and recovery. And, and so was born Jeff's place in memory of Jeff Krauss. And so over the last um, three years, more than, more than I might say I've done for Jeff, Jeff's done for me. Um, I've been, a world of recovery has opened up to me. The, uh, the 12 steps, spirituality in a way that I never experienced before. And in turn, I've been able to really take the teachings that I've learned growing up um, and connect them with the 12 steps and be able to share that with the community and have met what I believe are heroes throughout the community. Um, okay, so that's my story. But today we're not here to talk about our stories as much as we want to try to share some of this spirituality with all of you. So I'm going to jump into the first question, pose it to you. You wanted to ask something? Go ahead. Okay, yeah, I was just, I was just thinking you said something when you were speaking that... Uh, spark something in my mind and it and it's um this idea of addiction and viewing it as a spectrum that all of us fall on 
in some way or other. And, and is characterized by an aversion to discomfort and attachment to pleasure and a seeking of pleasure. And each one of us falls on that spectrum somewhere. And so to really normalize that as a human condition that some are more sensitive to and some struggle with more than others, but to some degree or other, we all fall on that spectrum somewhere. Yeah, I, I think this, the, the line is something to the effect we're all addicts, uh, just some are more so. You know, we, we, all, we all are addicted to behaviors that make us feel better. It could be, it could be food, it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be uh, an abuse of food. It could just be a go-to place. It could be sleep. It could be, it could be anything. It could be exercise. The point is that we all live in this inherent tension. And again, according to the, the teachings of, of Hasidic philosophy, Jewish mysticism, that's built into the human being, is that we have a spiritual side and we have an animalistic side, a, a selfless side and a selfish side, and they live in constant tension with each other. And we are all trying to resolve that tension in some way or another. Yeah, and, and um, at least coming into as much balance as possible, right? It's almost like in seeking perfect balance that we almost find yet another addiction, if that makes sense, what I'm saying. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay, awesome. So, the first topic we're going to talk about um, is recognizing our own limitations um, and learning how to create space within ourselves. So, Smitty, why don't you speak to that a little bit, and then I'll, I'll double down. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, well, I think where all of this starts, like where the spiritual journey starts for many people, is, yes, where we reach our own human limitations, where we are confronted with a situation or a problem that we cannot solve on our own. With our, within our own resources. Um, it's almost like uh, we try and we try and we tense and we tense against the problem um, until we finally reach a place of acceptance, of acceptance of my own limitations. And at that moment, we have the opportunity to reach for something else. Um, and that is what we're saying in, in the characterizing of addiction is reaching for something else, but the spiritual journey starts when I stop reaching for something that is material or that is a distraction and instead start reaching for something more. Um, and, and that happens for all of us, right? Like when I am in a disagreement with my wife, it's so weird to call her that now. <laughs> Just, and you're a newlywed. That's uh, right. You know. yeah. um, I have that moment where I get frustrated and I feel my insides torque. I tighten in some way and I want to be reactionary and I want to engage. Um, it's in that moment where I recognize um, maybe there is something outside of my own egoic thinking intention that can inspire my actions in such a way that I live um, uh, more effectively, you know? And I think that is, I mean, to me, that is what we're talking, that's where we're starting, is that point at which um, I realize that I have reached my own limitation. Yeah. Great, great. I, I, I'm going to take it uh, maybe a little more clinically for a second. Okay. Um, <laughs> I will change roles. <laughs> um, the first of the 12 steps is, is uh, recognizing that we, we don't have control over the alcohol. Um, and for me, I have kind of uh, two analogies that come to mind, one of which I've shared in the classes that I've given. Um, the first is the old saying, if you keep on doing what you're doing, you're going to keep on getting what you're getting. And yet, for some reason, so many of us keep on doing what we're doing, and we keep on getting what we're getting, and we wonder why, and it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's the person who's digging a hole while they're in the hole, and they keep on digging and keep on digging, and they're, they're not able to get out. And at a certain point, you've got to stop and say, wait, this is not working. So if this is not working, the first thing is just to recognize that I can't do it. I can't do it the way I've been doing it. And I can't do it on my own. Um, and in that moment, there's a choice to let go. And that is the most brutal, the most difficult, the most gut-wrenching choice because it goes counter to everything that the rational human being operates from. We, we, th we think of ourselves as thinking people, 
making rational decisions, um, even sometimes making rational decisions to do super rational things. But we still, we're in control of the decision. And, and the analogy that I give in the classes is that imagine if you're hanging on the edge of a cliff and there is no one around and the rocks are beginning to crumble and there's down, which is certain death, and there's no way you're getting back up. So you're holding on for dear life. That's us in our ego, just holding on, not willing to let go of our ego because we think that the alternative is certain death. And the first step is to let go. And just imagine, just take that analogy for a second. You're, at, you're being asked to let go, make a choice to let go, not knowing, other than the fact that other people have gone this path before you, that it works, you're being asked to let go of everything that makes sense to you. But it's in that moment when we're able to let go that we create space for something to happen. Yeah, and, and that is a skill. Right, that is a skill that we practice again and again. Um, and for me, having had the history that I had, I did not know how to let go of anything. I held on for dear life to everything. Every battle I fought, every situation, every uh, you know confrontation I fought. Letting go is not something I even know knew how to do. So if I were sitting in the audience today, however many years ago, and would have heard you said that, I would have said. Well, how the heck do I do that? You know, like I had no idea how to do that. Um, and so, yes, it took those that had come before me to start to show me a way of uh, letting go and what that even meant. I'll just add one thing. You, you, you mentioned your wife before. Um, not that I'm picking on you, but because we all have been in, on that road in some fashion or another. It's, it's letting go of the ego in whatever manifestation it is not because we have an agenda that if we let go of the ego, we're going to get something, right? Because then that's also a rational decision to do something. By the way, it, it, it's definitely not a bad thing to do to let go of the ego because you're going to end up in a happier place. But that's, you know, that's first grade. We want to graduate to a place where we let go of the ego because, because it's in that empty space that magic happens. Yeah, and I, I like to call that the sacred pause, right? Yes, where I just take a minute to pause. And it is so very simple. It is not that complicated, but don't let the simplicity of it um, trick, trick to trick us, right? Because it is extremely difficult to do um, at times, you know? And so while it is a very simple thing to take a pause, to not react, to give space, to let go of my own ego. Um, it's extremely difficult. And my question to you was, why? Why is it so difficult? Yes. Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, I can give you a, a, uh, a mystical interpretation according to Jewish teachings. Please do. And that is that um, Adam was formed from the earth. And as such, um, his whole identity, and, and then the soul came in afterwards. So his whole identity is this, this body, this being. And, and that's how we identify. That's how, that's how we do it. When, when we wake up in the morning, it's not our soul thinking. It's our body thinking. It's energized by the soul, and it, and it can find purpose and meaning from the soul, but we're really being, our, our consciousness is a consciousness of the body. Consciousness of the rational mind. So that's, that's everything for us. And what we're being told is to, to let that go and to, to suspend all of that in the name of something that we can't see, we can't touch, we can't smell, we can't feel. We can just believe. And that's, that's grueling. Now, once you do it and you see that it actually works and that you've experienced something, then it becomes an it becomes easier to do, but it's so counter to to our hardwiring as children. I mean, look at a newborn baby. A newborn baby comes into the world, and they want to eat, they want to sleep, and they're they're completely preoccupied with with their own existence. And even though we our minds develop and we get perspective around that existence, that's still our primary consciousness. 
Yeah, and and to draw from the recovery, the 12-step recovery community, we're looking at things like fear and pride. Pride is a big one. You know, I don't want to let this go. I want to. I want us to stay engaged in this argument or this difficulty or this whatever, um, out of my own sense of pride. Okay, awesome. So, so we've taken this um, this step of this grueling step of creating space within ourselves. Okay, that doesn't. What is that space now going to get filled with? What is it that we're letting in? Um. I, well, it has many names, I suppose. <laughs> um, just some type of presence beyond my own ego, right? And what we're doing and what we're talking about here is something that we all do probably, but we're slowing it all down and, and breaking it down in such a way that, um, yeah, we're putting, articulating something that happens like that um, for many of us. And so... Um, Yes, we can, we can reach our limitation. We can say, hey, I, I, I don't have a solution to this problem. I, I need help of some kind. But in order for us to, uh, to move from that place, we have to have some hope that there is something that, that, that can fill that space and that will fill that space with something that is uh, more inspirational or has more wisdom maybe than my own ego does. Yeah, so uh, came to believe that a power greater than myself could, could restore us to sanity. So what is that power? And in, in, in the rooms in AA, the conversation goes from being something that is uh, just outside of myself to being a spiritual being. And, you know, we're, we're in friendly company here. Um, so let's, let's loosen up a little bit. I'm talking to myself here. Um, let's loosen up a little bit about w what we mean when we talk about the higher power in this context. Uh, well, what I was going to say is I think for many people that just starts with someone else who might have a little bit more knowledge than I do about the problem. Um, and so in its simplest form, yes, it can just be a community even. Um, and from that place, does one start on a spiritual journey? You know, and from there, that spirituality can grow and um, flourish in such a way that it means something much more and much deeper than just a human or a group of humans. But yes, just at least starting with some ideas outside of my own. And, and the value there is that here we came, we came to the particular crossroads, situation, bottom, whatever you want to call it, um, you can probably help me with the term on on uh, on our own inertia, right? We we kind of have been propelling ourselves our whole lives to be in control of every situation, and we realize that it's not working. It's not working for us. So we so we stopped, and we let go. Okay, but we're, the goal is not just to let go. The goal is now to move forward. So the first thing we have to do is put. Fill that space with something that we are going to rely on. So whether it is the group of people, whether it is someone else, whether it is God, whether it is some other kind of spiritual entity that's bigger, bigger than us, what we've done is we've not just suspended our ego, we've actually, so to speak, given it over. We're now allowing something else, someone else, to guide how we're going to move forward. And that's, that's a, a tremendous statement of humility in, in the journey forward. Does that resonate with you? Um, yeah, it does. I think for me in my own journey, personally, what I think of is like how it needed to be as simple as possible for me. Granted the name of the talk, I suppose, you know. Um, and so, uh, yes, and that looking like uh, a set of spiritual principles. You know, and those being things like integrity or honesty or courage or perseverance or things like that, you know, and um, allowing those things to be the thing to lead my forward actions um, instead of trying to wrestle with circumstances and attain the outcome that I want. I instead allow I focus my attention on my efforts being inspired by this greater power. Awesome. So my premise 
um, is that all of us have this inner struggle, and therefore we can all benefit from these essentially universal spiritual principles. So we've created space, we've given it over. What are some practical things that we do in order to um, ensure connection, to put ourselves in perspective um, in this journey? I think it starts where we start to deconstruct our own ego, right? We start to look at what fears, what what uh, selfishness, whatever it is that's driving our ego, that's driving us to act in the ways that we are acting. We gain an insight. We start to learn about ourselves. And we do that through um, different exercises in the 12-step community that starts with the personal inventory, where a person starts to look at their um, their their fears or their resentments or um, and they are able to do an exercise where they look at all the different conflicts in their life and really be able to boil all those conflicts down to a handful of fears. So they've got problems with their boss, they've got problems with their spouse, they've got problems with their siblings, whatever. But underneath, underpinning all of those different situations are only three or four fears of what other people think of um, that they're not worth it, that they're not appreciated, or these are the kind of things. And so in that way, by doing this exercise, all of these infinite number of situations are simplified down into a handful of fears. And if the person can find help with the, those few fears, then all of these different situations write themselves. Um, the problem is we can't willfully make these fears go, go away. I can't just say I'm going to stop being afraid of what other people think about me. If it were that easy, man, life would just be pretty easy, right? <laughs> you know. Um, so that is where we start to, yes, turn to this power through prayer, through, um, through also contrary action being a very important thing. So What do you mean by that? Yeah, so those fears still exist within me. I'm afraid of what other people think, let's, let's say. So that might incur in, in, like, encourage me to act in certain ways that make me more afraid of what other people think about me. Um, and so what I have to do is act contrary to how I feel. So even though, let's say, I want to be clingy with my partner because I'm afraid they're going to leave me, the fear would have me be very clingy with them. I have to act contrary to that fear. And through doing so... I act my way out of it. And it's really a theory that underpins cognitive behavioral therapy as well because um, essentially you're acting your way into changing your cognitions. So you act first, your thinking will follow. Um, but that takes tremendous courage and effort in the beginning. That's why the process of change is so difficult for anyone, really. Um, my wife actually says that... Uh, so forgive this, but she says, uh, people don't change. And she says, I am one of the few people that, that has contradicted that statement. But she has always thought that people typically don't change. And I think the reason that she's thought that is because changing is so difficult. It takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of courage to do that, to, 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 to act contrary to how one feels, to gain in the insight to even know how you feel. That's profound. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sitting up here and I've been uh, invested in this community for a number of years now. But I imagine that some people in the crowd are, are wondering, well, I got to let go of that ego. That's a, that's a very frightening thing to have to do. And I, uh, I heard a talk once from, from Rabbi Taub that really presented it beautifully. And I, and I think it's, it's important to contextualize what we're speaking about. And that is that we're not asking anybody we, not we, the 12 steps, life, the journey of, of recovery, the journey of spirituality, is not saying you have to throw out who you are. Because each of us come into this world with a unique set of gifts and complexities that are all part of our unique design. The, the thing is that we, like I said before, we operate from, from our own inertia. Like we don't recognize that who we are and the gifts that we have come from somewhere else. And we, we, we own them as our own, and then that leads us to this place that um, it's, it's uh, what's the expression, self-will run wild? Run riot. Run riot, thank you. Um, so the point here is that when we 
when we suspend the ego, when we create the space and we fill the space with the higher power, then when faced with the ego, we're no longer controlled by it. So when, when that fear shows up, um, in this morning's talk uh, from Pat Kennedy, he captured an idea of spirituality that I've never heard before, and I think it's quite profound. Spirituality is the difference between reactive and proactive thinking. Reactive thinking is, okay, someone's after me, I gotta protect myself. Proactive thinking is, okay, here's a situation. What's, what's the ideal response? What's the healthy response? What's the humble response and so on? So yes, the ego is not gonna go away. It, it, it won't go away, we were born with it. And you know, if we didn't have an ego, we wouldn't be compelled to do anything in life. We wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, what I hear you talking about is like, yes, we inherit um, uh, characteristics of our ancestors, basically. And so, yes, my, my ego is conditioned as a consequence of my caregivers and the people around me. And so um, in order to really foster what um, free will, it requires this type of work, this type of... Um, getting in touch with my reactions and instead being intentional and not just reacting to everything that's happening around me. Um, instead, I start to be able to actually have choice. I get to choose. I get to choose my own values. I don't simply inherit the ones that are given to me or that are conditioned within me as a consequence of media or um, family or whatever. I, at that point, begin to have choice in my life, real choice. And that is not something that, uh, I think Eric Fromm said that, um, and that is not something that's inherent. I think it's something that must be cultivated. In order for us to have real choice, instead of just reacting out of our conditioning, we must do our own insight work. Rabbi, can you tell me what time it is? 2.30? Okay. If it's okay with you, Smitty, I'm gonna, I want to share just a brief uh, Jewish teaching Please. that I, I heard uh, as a child and always loved it, but it's only through the lens of recovery that I think I really get it. Um, so briefly, the, the thought is the first time God, uh, God appears to Abraham in, in the Torah, in the, in the uh, Jewish Bible, God tells Abraham, Lech Lecha, go for yourself, from your land, from your birthplace, uh, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So this is the first time God appears to Abraham, and he says to him, I want you to go. I'm not going to tell you where you're going, and you're leaving everything that you know, your birthplace, your father's house, uh, and so on. So the teachings are that these three ideas of your land, your birthplace and your father's house represent the things that condition who we are as, as young people in this world. Um, we're conditioned through genetics, that's our birthplace. We're conditioned through our parental upbringing, that's your father's house. And uh, um, your land is the environment, the culture that we grow in, the grow up in, the friends that we grow up in. So God is telling Abraham, lech lecha, I want you to leave all that behind. But the Hebrew words are very important. It's lech lecha, go to yourself. If you really want to get in touch with who you really are, it's not all these superimposed things on you, which even though they'll always be part of who you are, they don't control you and they don't dictate who we are. We're not dictated by our genetics, we're not dictated by our, our parental upbringing, we're not dictated by the friends or even by the choices that we've made. The true us is deeper than all of that but we have to leave it in order to come back to it. That gave me chills. <laughs> it really did, you know, because that, what a wonderful teaching, what a wonderful uh, thing, and that's speaking exactly to, to what, I'm, what I'm saying as yeah, well. As you were speaking, that, 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 that teaching just jumped back into my head there. Yeah, and as a therapist, I feel like I'm in this interesting, uh, in this interesting position of like, uh, pseudo clergy person, phil like a philosopher, like 
it's just a weird, weird thing to be in the world, quite honestly. And and yes, like drawing from all kinds of different uh, ideas and and uh, traditions, and it's just it's it's such a blessing to be able to do it. And um, I'm really just I don't know grateful to be able to do it. Awesome. So. Okay, so this ego thing keeps on showing up and it's going to keep on showing up for the rest of our lives. Um, how do we de deconstruct the ego? If you can talk a little bit about um, the, uh, the inventory tool that's available to us. Um, I mean, from a 12-step setting, yes, the inventory tool would be a four-column inventory where you, let's say, so I, I can use a personal example, my mother, for example. Um, so let's say I resent my mother because uh, she left when I was young and she continues to use now. So in the next, in the third column, I would look at what of my natural instincts are affected by her actions. You know, are my self-esteem, my social instinct, right? My personal relationships are affected. My ambitions in life are affected. Um, and so we go and we look at it because what happens is people take it, people act. It threatens my natural instincts and I get upset. Um, instinct for security, for example, whether it's financial or emotional. She acted in the way that she did. It threatened my emotional security. It threatened my financial security. And so then in the fourth column, I look at my part in the situation. And so for me, with a, being a young child, you may say, well, you don't have a part in that. You, you were just a, a kid. And, and yes, that's true, but what I do have a part in is continuing to keep that resentment going. That is what I very much still have a part in. And that, for me, is driven by fear. It's driven by a fear that I wasn't enough to, for her not to do it. It's driven by a fear of what other people think about my family. Um, and I would have to do more. <laughs> I can't think of all of them. There's a couple more probably there for me, right? And so what happens is, is that fear drives me to be uh, self-righteous with her at times. It drives me to be contemptuous or judgmental of her. And what's interesting is the more I am judgmental or contemptuous or uh, whatever, I'm going to be in a lot more fear of what other people think about me. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and so, yes, what do I do? I do the opposite. I am, I'm respectful. I'm tolerant. I, I act my way into those things. So that's just a, a short uh, example of how to use that specific inventory tool. But everyone having their own uh, mental, like therapist is extremely helpful. And just beginning to sort through all of, or even maybe just a clergy person or a friend or whomever. Um, but beginning to sort through like the different aspects of my personality and where do they come from and how did I, how did I inherit them and begin to do the work to create space within myself. Awesome. So when I was, um, when I was teaching this, uh, the 12-step spiritual group, the first time, um, when we came to, so I, I was taking each of the steps and finding the spiritual teaching within the, uh, the mystical um, studies that I grew up with. When we came to inventory, I got stuck. I mean, because it's, it, it's easy to just say, well, one has to do some form of self-accounting, but that doesn't really capture what's the essence of that as a spiritual principle. Um, and I, I reached out to my father, who's a, a great teacher of Hasidic philosophy, and he shared a passage from the, the previous, the sixth Lubavitch Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, and he writes that Hasidim are always happy. And the reason that they're always happy is because they are after the cheshbon, which would loosely translate, they are after having done inventory. And as you were speaking, this really connected with me because, when, again, when, when a person is experiencing frustration or in some kind of routine engaged in a practice of, of doing inventory, of taking inventory, at first glance it could seem like I'm going to bring up all the muck, you know, all this this resentment that I have, and I have to analyze it, and I have to say, why, why am I angry at my mother? And you know, what fear is that bringing up? And it, and it could feel like, oh my gosh, this, all this mud is going to come up, and I don't want to do it. But the passage that, that the, the rabbi is saying is that when we take the time to do inventory, it actually sparks joy, because we're no longer held captive by 
those emotions and, and by the ego, we're actually liberated from it. And again, using, using uh, Pat Kennedy's words, is we're not going to outer space, we're going into inner space. We're getting into the real deep parts of who we are, which is the freest parts of who we are, is the deepest part of ourselves. But it gets, it gets hampered by all these external layers that, again, some, some we've chosen and some have been imposed on us, but when we look at them and we analyze them and we do the inventory, they break away and, and they liberate us. And, and many people, we fall for the illusion that because we're not consciously thinking about these things all day, they're not affecting us, which is not true. It's, it's all of this stuff that's operating in the subconscious. That's very much, yes, I, I don't walk around thinking about, you know, Susie who broke up with me when I was in the fourth grade or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, or even if it's more like uh, a serious wrong that had been done to me. Um, I, I don't walk around all day long thinking about that. So, the, so many people say, well, what would be the point in, in bringing that back up? Like that's in the past, that's gone. The truth is, it's, yes, it's filling this space within me that like um, could be filled with something uh, much better. Um, so we're going to be out of time soon. I want to tackle, um, I want to give you a challenge. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, we talked a lot about stuff that goes on inside of us. What about the stuff that comes at us from the outside that's not necessarily someone else doing something to us, right? It's not like that person... I now have resentment to that person because they're making my life difficult. But the circumstances of life, right? I mean, we just, we're, we're in, in the, hopefully at the tail end of a pandemic. Like, if you want to be angry, there's a lot to be angry at, at the universe. But how do we deal with that? How do we look at that um, from a spiritual standpoint? Well, I mean, my, my advice normally for people when they start citing things that are happening all over the world is that, um, I cannot, uh, like, explain all of the world's happenings. I do my best to make sense of my own experience. At best, that's what I can do. Um, if I try and ingest all that is happening, all of the wrongs and the tragedies in the world, I will be unable to come up with a sufficient explanation for those things. The best I can do is start to make sense of my own experience. Um, and then... I look at the tragedies, I look at the things that are happening in the world, and I look for purpose within them, right? I look for finding purpose within them. I don't look to have a uh, life completely free of difficulty or, or look for the world to even be free of difficulty. Um, instead, I look to that stuff to find purpose and meaning. Um, that's what comes up in, in the immediate. Cool. I, the... the uh Rabbi Taub's got a line, which I love, and it's uh, one you can take to the bank. It's, life's challenges is our spiritual curriculum. So when, when we've experienced challenges, whether they're from the outside or from within, in a sense, it's God's way of saying, hey, this is where you have work to do. This is where you have opportunity to grow from this experience. What's interesting about that is that's what brings me closer to God. Are these life's challenges? At least for me, I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but that's that's where I begin to reach for God, is when I'm presented with them, and that is, you know, from an early age in my own experience, that's that's what I've been looking for, and and so the sufferings that I've experienced and that I've seen others experience, like that's the curriculum that has led me to this spiritual development that I have experienced. The following is not scripted, but I'd like if everybody would do me a favor, we'll do some hands-on. If everybody can close their eyes for 30 seconds. Okay, you can open your eyes. By a show of hands, when was the last time you closed your eyes intentionally other than to go to sleep? 
Okay. <laughs> was that intentional? It was, please, if you're comfortable, please raise your hand so I can see your hands. Okay, so there's like 12% of the room. What you just did in closing your eyes, in my opinion, is prayer. It's a form of prayer and it's a form of connection with ourselves that in our society we don't allow ourselves to experience. We just, we just don't do it. We're so busy outputting that we close our eyes to go to sleep and you can't connect with yourself unless you close your eyes, unless you're in that space. Go ahead. Well, and we value our thinking so much. We place so much emphasis on our own thinking as if it were the end-all, be-all. And I see we have a question here or a comment. Um, but it, yes, and so it's, it's such an almost like egotistical thing that we value our thinking so much that we, in our own production, that we don't take the time to just sit quietly or, you know, and listen for some type of inspiration or just sit for no other purpose than to just sit. Many of us have forgotten how to just sit. You know, we have to be doing something. We have to be watching something. We have to be reading something. And, it's, and it can be really uncomfortable for many of us to just sit quietly and sit still for any period of time. Awesome. Let's, yeah, we'll do a few questions. Yes, sir. In the big book, it says two different times you will drink again if you do not take an inventory and you do not make amends. Is that what you said, right? Um, I think the amends piece is huge because the person carries around a lot of baggage and maybe both of them are associated with carrying baggage. Um, and so there's guilt and there's shame around actions that I've taken that have caused harm to others. When I take the action to amend that behavior and own it with someone and really acknowledge it and tr do whatever I can to right that situation, I can then move forward with my life and leave that guilt and shame behind because I can feel comfortable about the person that I am and the efforts that I've made to right that situation. And so that frees me, uh, it frees me up inside in the same way that the inside around the inventory does. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, what speaks to me is that so much of this work that we've been talking about is inside of us. and. It's almost the inverse, right? So all of that we've been talking about is taking place inside. It's, it's very spiritual. But we have, to, we have to actualize the spirituality. It can't just be ethereal inside of you know, some dimension of our being. And the inventory and the amends takes, takes those parts of us that, we, that we're most resentful about and most... Um, the ugliest self-commentary that we have for ourselves is around the inventory and the, the amends, and we take it out of ourselves. That's, that's action, right? So we have thought and speech, which is the, 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 uh, with, our, with our sponsor articulating um, you know, what needs to be said, and then there's the action of actually making the amends and doing the inventory. So, I just think we're taking it from its more ethereal place and actualizing it. And I like that idea that once we, once we get it out of us, it, it's like when you say sorry, when you apologize, you don't have to hold it anymore, right? As long as it's done correctly and properly. And I, and I do like that in that it is actualized through my action. And I think you spoke to that really well, actually. And often, as it relates to amends, I will often suggest people to avoid even saying the words, I'm sorry. Because for many alcoholics and addicts, I'm sorry has, has been said many times. And so the, the words themselves lose, lose their uh, meaning almost. And so to really just acknowledge, I really wronged you. I really hurt you in some way. And I am here to set that right in any way possible. And please let me know if there is some way in which I have harmed you that I'm unaware and so really giving the other person the opportunity to voice any other kind of wrongs that they've experienced. All of this stuff is super practical. Like even, even for the person who's not a person in recovery, like just as a way of operating in the world, it's awesome. And you will often hear a lot of addicts and alcoholics say that they're grateful, grateful to be an alcoholic. 
and grateful to have this type of program to give them guidance in terms of how to operate in relationships with other people and how it's led to this deeper and more rich spiritual life that they live as a consequence of being an alcoholic in recovery. Those were great closing words, but do you have anything else you'd like to, share <laughs> to, to close out? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think it, this was really an honor and a, and a pleasure to sit up here and speak with you and to have all of your attention. So, so thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And I'll, I'll just share one, one final closing thought. We live in a world that, I mean, if, if you took somebody from even 100 years ago and dropped them into our world today, it, it, it's, a, it's such a strange place we live in. There's so much opportunity. There's so much connectivity. And yet, at the same time, there's so much disconnect. And as every year goes on, there are things that go on in the world that, on the one hand, are like glorious, and on the other hand, wonder if we're ever going to get out of this mess. And I, I see this as as a, a birthing of a new world. It's a transitional time. I don't know how long this transitional period will last for, but it's a transitional time. And whenever there's transition, it's messy. But when it comes to an end, new life is born and something amazing comes into the world. And if you pay attention to what's going on, there is a desire across every mishagas, every nonsense that's going on in the world, there's a desire for something deeper, from equality to, uh, to various different types of human rights. It's, it's, not, it's a desire that people should be seen for who they are, that the world people should be accepted for who they are, and that the world opportunities should be available to everyone. Th these are all desires to strip away layers. So what we're talking about here is I would venture to say even in faith communities and even in the Jewish community, it's really about stripping away layers of the things we already know to really connect with them. There's so much opportunity for spirituality and connection in Judaism. But we have to, we have to look at it. We have to close our eyes to really connect with it. And this is the opportunity that's available to us. So I hope you've enjoyed and uh, we're both available if uh, anybody has some questions and via email, and uh, hopefully everybody could find their own spiritual practice within this overall journey. Thank you. Thanks. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.